All right, Jesse, last week's case had a lot going on. Horse racing, models, drugs, real estate, you know. What's the story this time around? A picture-perfect relationship between a pastor and his wife is revealed to have had dark secrets when someone ends up murdered. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about broken vows, broken hearts, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Thanks to absolutely all of you for your lovely reviews this week. I love each and every one of you. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all the different goodies that you get. Speaking of, our water bottles are in production, Jesse. Oh, finally. I'm yep. so excited, guys. Andy went to bat for y'all if you're on the Patreon. She <laughs> tried out so many different types of water bottles to get these specific ones. And then we went through drama to get them because the company wouldn't print murder on bottles, which is very hard. Understandable. When, understandably. <laughs> but if our name is Love Murder Podcast, it makes it a little difficult to give y'all swaggy merch. I jumped through quite a few hoops for this one, but you're going to have the best water bottles that there are out there. And we're very excited. And speaking of Patreon, we're so pleased to give a great big shout out to our newest patrons. A big welcome to Dia H, Christine M, and Tina C, Jody P, Amber F, and JCG, Brianne D, Tonya J E, and Josie R, Rebecca W, Heather M, and Tian N, Bobby M, and Jessia D. And finally, Allison B and Landon S. What an awesome new group. Huge, 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 huge. Thanks for all of you guys. We are so honored to be your Patreons. Yeah. One other thing. We just recently found out that the sticker that Patreon sent to all of our patrons, I'd like to address this. I specifically requested the largest size for y'all, and it seems as though they've shipped you a sticker for ants. It is a sticker for ants. It was supposed to be four inches, guys. Andy showed me to order because I was like, Andy, what did you do? And she's like, I ordered the largest size. I love that Jesse just defaults to me ordering a sticker for ants (laughs) for my little ant town. So yeah, so I have written Patreon. It does take them a while to get back to us. They are, you know, artist and creator focused. So I'm sure they don't have like a 24-hour staff member to get back to us. But they've been great about communicating and responding. So I'll just give them a few days and we'll figure out what the next best step is. But to everyone who received the sticker for ants, please feel free to... (laughs) to use at your discretion and we will be providing you with a more appropriate size sticker although that could be cute on a phone you know I don't know (laughs) yeah use that one but you're gonna get another free one because that's ridiculous 
ridiculous sticker I've ever seen. <laughs> Microscopic. So our apologies. That was one that like usually we design them and send them out ourselves. That was one Patreon did for us. Well, we designed and... it, but then they made it very small. Okay. I think with all of that being said, let's get into this week's story. This was a recommendation from Whitney G and a review by FBI. April 20th, 1996 was a blessed day in Knoxville, Tennessee. The sun was shining and two families were about to be joined for eternity in the age-old tradition of matrimony. 21-year-old Matthew Winkler stood six feet one, handsome, dark-haired, and strapping as his linebacker days were only barely behind him. He beamed with pride as his petite brunette wife-to-be, 22-year-old Mary Carol Freeman, made her way down the aisle wearing her mother's silk wedding dress. It was truly a family affair. They're very both very family-oriented people, and it also happened that they were both members of the Church of Christ, a conservative offshoot of Christianity that believes that the Bible's word is literal history and governs how one should live one's life. Matthew's family had deep roots in the religion. His ancestors had been instrumental in its inception, and his father, Dan, was a fourth or fifth generation preacher. Dan now had the honor of officiating the wedding of his second-born son to a fellow adherent of the Church of Christ, a sweet, quiet woman of kind and gentle ways. The only thing that made Dan prouder than his son's wise choice and partner was that Matthew had decided to answer the calling of God and follow in his father's footsteps into the ministry. Mary was also looking to endeavor to a life of service and hoped to teach special ed. All nine pink dress bridesmaids and nine suited groomsmen smiled upon the beautiful young couple exchanging their vows. They seemed so perfectly matched. It was like the union was truly blessed, which is why it would be so shocking when nearly a decade later, a horrific murder would reveal dark secrets in the marriage between the good pastor and his wife. Even after a trial had been concluded and a sentence doled out, questions would continue to linger about what really had happened behind those closed doors, whether justice had been served, and how much really can you ever know your pastor? So let's start by talking about our blushing bride. Mary Freeman was born on December 10th, 1973 in Knoxville, Tennessee, the first daughter of Mary Nell Freeman, a teacher, and her husband Clark, a contractor who made a lucrative living flipping houses. Mary was raised in an upper middle class neighborhood in southwest Knoxville, and the family was strict adherents of the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ, like I said, is an offshoot of Christianity that bases their doctrine on the Bible alone. They believe that the splitting up of Christians into different denominations is actually against God's will, and the basis for restoring Christian unity lies with strict following of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, which they consider historically accurate. So the reason why we're talking about the Church of Christ is that the religion's belief system is very relevant to this case and the people involved in it. Much of what I'm going to discuss, though, is specific to the congregations and the families and the time frame that are featured on this episode and therefore would not potentially represent all churches of Christ from what I've read of their doctrine. It seems like in the 
20 years or more, depending on what childhood memory or, or taking them into adulthood. It seems like some of these policies have been updated, specifically the ones regarding women's role in the church and attitudes towards divorce. Okay. But again, every congregation is different. They all follow their own rules. So I'm going to be talking about specifically the way that Matthew and Mary were raised and the congregations they were involved in. So if you are a member of this church and you're going, this is all wrong, lady, I'm just talking about specifically this family. So that's my caveat. So when Mary was being raised, the Church of Christ precluded women not only from being ministers, but leading prayer or speaking in church at all. Unless they were singing in the choir, they were allowed to sing in the choir, which, by the way, was completely done a cappella because they didn't believe any musical instruments like an organ were mentioned in the Bible. So they didn't use them. Even in some congregations, women weren't even allowed to teach Sunday school. And that's because followers of the Church of Christ believe that the Bible instructs the man to lead the church and his family, while a woman's role is to submit to the husband. The most popular book for young women in the Church of Christ, according to a 2018 article from AuthenticTheology.com, is called God's Girls. And I did find it for sale. And so the blurb from the publisher reads, Actions speak louder than words. God's Girls points the way to service through love, obedience, service, purpose, and courage. Service twice. A God's girl is always a leader, not the screamer who vies for attention, but the serene follower of Christ. In the book, the author, Teresa Hampton, explains that God gave them a hierarchy to be followed by first creating Adam and then Eve. A direct quote from the book is, a man's job is to lead and a woman's job is to submit. Whew. So... <laughs> This was very true in the Freeman house where Clark's word was law and Mary and her mother would never do a thing without Clark's explicit approval. This also factors very heavily into Mary's personality. From the time she was a very small girl, she was considered obedient, quiet, well-behaved, soft-spoken, and reserved, which were all considered virtues in her community and family. When Mary was two years old, her younger sister Patricia was born with a myriad of health issues. She was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at birth, and then she developed spinal meningitis and encephalitis as a baby. As a result, she had significant mental and physical disabilities. They said that it was likely she would not develop past the mental age of five years old or so. So Mary was fiercely protective and loving with her younger sister. She like definitely looked out for her. She thought of herself as her protector. And even though they each had their own bedrooms, Mary would go into Patricia's bedroom and sleep with her every single night to make sure she was okay. And Patricia had to wear leg braces and Mary would just put a pillow between them so that the leg braces didn't bang against her legs as they slept. The Freeman family also occasionally welcomed foster children into their home. And as a result, Mary was very nurturing towards these younger children. On April 15th, 1987, tragedy struck when Mother Mary Nell was bathing eight or 11-year-old Patricia in the bath. 
which by the way, I say eight or 11 because I have two sources today. My first source is the full length true crime novel, The Pastor's Wife by Diane Fanning. And then I also read The Minister's Wife by Anne Rule, which is a shorter version in her collection of stories in Smoke, Mirrors and Murder. And so Anne Rule said she was eight years old. Diane Fanning said she was 11 years old. But in any case, she had been in the bath singing. Her mother was bathing her and she suffered a fatal heart attack. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Diane Fanning said at this time, Mary was 13 years old and she was absolutely devastated. She consulted with this school counselor to help her manage this grief because it was like I said, she had appointed herself her protector. She was doing everything to monitor Patricia's health and make sure she was well. And she fully intended to take care of Patricia for the rest of her life because she loved her so, so much. And it's why she eventually had a drive to get into special education. And so this loss really just decimated Mary emotionally, mentally, everything. But when Clark found out that she was seeing a school counselor, he not only forbade Mary from continuing counseling, but he also called the school and told the counselor that they were not under any circumstances to speak to his daughter. He said that it was a matter for their family, church, and God, not a secular professional. So without this help, and I'm not sure exactly what sort of assistance she did receive from the church because it was not mentioned, she never fully recovered from this loss. Years later, psychiatrists would point to this period as the genesis for post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Which Mary would suffer from, mostly undiagnosed for the rest of her life. Around the same time that Patricia tragically died, the Freemans adopted five siblings They had previously fostered, I think, at least one of these children. And when their parents were stripped of their custody due to terrible neglect, they ended up adopting these children who were a mix of boys and girls from the ages of five to 11 years old. These children absolutely adored Mary and she loved them in return. Well, you know, this was more change, which has to be disruptive to a psyche who has just lost a sister. In some ways, having these five new baby brothers and sisters actually helped to heal this Patricia-sized hole in her heart. Yeah, it's a distraction. Obviously, without the right therapy and psychological help, it's going to be hard to... She can pour all of that grief and love back into these children that had a really bad upbringing up until this point. So they would characterize Mary as a mini mother who is constantly taking care of them with affection and looking out for their best interests. In high school, Mary participated in numerous religious organizations. She sang in the choir, she played tennis, and she volunteered as a peer tutor for students in special ed classes. Though she was always considered somewhat reserved, she also reportedly had a very good sense of humor, a constant smile, and a kind disposition. Another classmate was said to say about her that like, you know, people would say, how are you doing? And you'd go fine. And then they'd walk away. And like, she was the type of person that would have a genuine interest in how you were doing and what that person was like and what they needed in their life. And if there was any way she could help. She was clearly born to be a helper. She never went through a rebellious phase. I mean, she was like the epitome of a so-called like good girl. And she was reported by others to be an almost unusually unselfish and compassionate teenager. 
After high school graduation, she attended the flagship college for Churches of Christ, Lipscomb University in Nashville, before transferring to Freed Hardeman University in Henderson, Tennessee, so she could obtain a specialized degree in special education. Despite living away from home, Mary stayed very close to her family and faithful to her religious upbringing, even calling home every week to remotely participate in the Freeman's Thursday night Bible study. At her new university, Mary joined the campus evangelism forum where she met a handsome, tall drink of water named Matthew Winkler, who was one year younger than her and happened to belong to one of the most well-respected families in the Churches of Christ. Matthew was born on November 21st, 1975, the second son of three boys born to Dan Winkler and his teacher wife, Diane. The Winklers were pretty much a Church of Christ dynasty. Not only had their ancestors been pioneers in the movement that established the religion in the early 1800s, but when Matthew was ordained, he became the fifth or sixth generation in his family to serve as minister. Matthew had been a star football player in high school and also prepared for his future vocation by attending a program called Lads to Leaders and volunteering to public speak and teach public speaking to other teenagers in his community. He was one of the most popular students in his school. He was voted Mr. Austin in high school. And I am not certain exactly where this came from. It had to be some sort of local thing. But it sounded like it was similar to a homecoming king type of designation. Matt's parents were delighted when Matthew followed the call to become a preacher and chose a Bible studies major at the Church of Christ College, Freed Hardeman University. Now, the school at the time that they attended, I think it was the early 90s, was very conservative. I do not know what it's like now. But at the time, boys and girls were not ever allowed to set foot in each other's dorms, and they still had a nightly curfew. So nine months after meeting and with their family's blessings, the young couple got married at the ages of 21 and 22 in April of 1996. At the end of that academic year, both Mary and Matthew dropped out of school to move to Louisville, where they could make and save money by having Matthew work for Mary's father in construction for a little while. Unfortunately for Mary, Matthew seemed to deeply change after they were married. He began to become verbally abusive. He started denigrating her weight and choices, and he became very controlling. And now this is an environment and a woman who was raised to have her husband make all of the decisions for the family and his word was law. So if she thought and her family thought he was controlling, then you have to imagine he was extremely controlling. At the beginning, Mary tried to chalk it up to resentment at being forced to drop out of school to save money for their young family. It was also theorized that, you know, he was very proud. Maybe he didn't like having to work in construction and rely on his father-in-law for a paycheck. Well, you dropped out of school, so I don't really know what you want. Yeah, I mean, it feels like this would be something that they would have talked about before they got married. Like, hey, we have to save money for, you know, buying a house and having kids. Like, we're going to have to drop out of school for a while. So I don't know how this came as a surprise. They were children and they were only together for nine months. So, yes. Yeah, they were rather young at this point. They were kept apart, too. Like, it seems like there wasn't a lot of kind of male-female integration at the school, so they probably weren't even able to have that many conversations. Yeah, and there was definitely no premarital sex between these two. I know that for sure. 
Matthew also was easily frustrated with Mary's five siblings because many of them still lived at home at this point. And now she's in their hometown or she was close by. I think they moved to Louisville and they would just stop by all the time. It was their big sister that they absolutely adored and they wanted to see her all of the time. And he began to get very angry about these frequent visits. He didn't want her going to her family's house all the time. And he said basically to her that her family was with him now and their future children and that she needed to put space between herself and her siblings. Uh, Which is not cool. Red flag, red flag, red flag. Red flag on the field. (laughs) Wait, I need to go get our whistles from Jennifer G. Yeah, that might be a little shell shocking on the microphone. a little loud. Andy's ears split. But hey, thank you, Jennifer. We love our red flag whistles so much. Okay, so yes, this is a huge red flag that he's trying to alienate her from her family. And also, I have to say, I mean, she's not that much terribly older than she was when these children came to live with her. They probably do still need her. They looked at her as like an additional mother, as a huge support for themselves. And she was really, really proud to have that position in their lives. So this is harmful to her psyche because that's the role she thinks of herself as, and it's being ripped away from her and harmful to their psyches because they do need her. Yep. But he doesn't care. No, he wants her place to be in their family. Eventually, they were able to scrap together enough money to return to Henderson so Matthew could complete his degree. Well, obviously, Mary was not able to complete her degree. That was on the back burner for several years. (sighs) So when he finished school, Mary supported the family by working full time at a Piggly Wiggly. On September 30th, 1997, they welcomed their first child, Patricia Diane Winkler, named for Mary's sister, of course, and Matthew's mother. After graduation, Matthew began a job as a youth pastor, and they began to move around quite a bit. He was always vying to get a pulpit minister position, though it seemed for some reason it never kind of worked out. And I don't really know, like there wasn't any criticism about the way he ministered or people weren't saying what it was, but it seemed like he could never get his hands on the type of position that he wanted, which was pulpit because he'd be like running his own church. Yeah. Throughout these disappointments, though, an acquaintance said that he would take out his disappointments on Mary. She became somewhat of a whipping boy for him. When Mary was pregnant with her second child, her mother passed away and Mary began to feel bereft. The family moved into their new apartment only Four days before their second daughter, Allie, was born five weeks premature. Whoa. Can you imagine how stressful that would be? No, the last month is like so important. It's so important. You're also stressful. Also, you just moved in four days into your new place. You can't be settled and you have a toddler who needs you. Yeah, no. Yeah, the girls were only 18 months apart. So that's like, imagine our kids now and you're having another baby premature almost now. So she was super duper like postpartum, stressed out, depressed at this point. She had had two kids within an 18-month period. She also had obviously one child that was extremely premature, which brings along with it a host of health issues. I was four and a half weeks premature, so I was almost five weeks premature. And my mom, I don't know if my mom's ever recovered, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) She's like still stressed out about me. (laughs) Yeah. 
And then she also had to contend with the death of her mother, which really because of the PTSD brought back the death of her sister. So she's got so much emotionally and mentally going on. And this was only compounded by the fact that Matthew continued to try to put distance between Mary and her siblings, effectively denying her emotional support, but also childcare assistance in her time of need because her sisters and brothers would have come and helped her with the kids while she was recovering from premature birth. At one of these visits... Matthew actually called a meeting with her siblings and said, Mary is not your sister like she was your sister when you were growing up. She's married now. She has two children now. Her responsibility is here with her new family and not with you. I'm pretty sure she's still their sister. Yeah. Getting married doesn't change your relationship with your nuclear-born family. Well, if you're in an abusive relationship, it does. Yeah. (laughs) And can. People don't have like a finite amount of love to give. If you can give love to multiple children, how can you not also provide love for your siblings? Yeah, no, I know. Well, Matthew is battling his own demons. He suffered from intense self-imposed pressure to have his own church and live up to his father's and grandfather's and great-grandfather's example. So it looked like this was a dual edged sword here on one side it was that he wanted to have the reputation and already start building his own congregation in his own church the way that all of his forefathers had on the other side the pulpit minister makes a whole lot more money and also is given a free parsonage to live in where a like a youth pastor is not and so he was struggling with making ends meet for his growing family so He seemed like the type of person, and there's a lot of gray areas in the story, and we'll get to this, like, he said, she said thing later, where it seemed like he didn't handle pressure very well. And we don't know the extent exactly of all of the abuse. We'll get into why later that is. But yeah, it seemed like he was somebody who was very strident, controlling, rigid, and not very good at keeping his temper in control. It probably did not help that they had a lot of dysfunction in the bedroom. As I imagine, uh, which sometimes occurs when you wait until marriage to have sex, the couple was completely mismatched sexually. Which is why I always say, guys, you gotta test drive the car before you drive it off the lot. Oh, yeah. Premarital oh, sex all yeah. the way. <laughs> we we try not to make political <laughs> statements here on Love Murder, but we will say we are for premarital sex. Yes. I would be a big hypocrite if I said I was not responsible and safe premarital sex. Yes, of course. Matthew was more adventurous and he wanted to experiment like sexually, not with like threesomes, foursomes, and morphums, but just with like different sexual acts, positions, and so on. Well, Mary found these things not only repellent, but unnatural. She was somebody who found like even oral sex unnatural. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. Yeah. So she was raised that you have sex to have children. And yes, it's something you do to solidify this bond between you and your husband, but you don't have to get crazy about it. The dick doesn't need to go everywhere. And then there was another problem was that when Matthew pushed these acts that she didn't want to do, she even admitted 
sometimes she didn't want to do it and she would later maybe tell him she didn't want to do these things. But during the act itself, she never was outspoken about wanting him to stop. She would suffer through the sex act because she thought that that was her duty as a woman and a wife. And so this was taking a toll on her psyche as somebody who is postpartum, who has PTSD, and now she is suffering through these sex acts. And people who were supporters of Matthew pointed out later that she never explicitly said she told him no. Yeah, but she's not supposed to talk. So you're kind of like, it's a catch-22. This is the problem with institutional misogyny or sexism. She was put in a position where she didn't feel like she could advocate for her own sexual rights. Yeah. So what are we supposed to do here? (laughs) And then she didn't. Yeah. And then people who would advocate for Matthew say, well, how was he to know that she wasn't comfortable with these sexual acts? Which this comes out differently later. So we are like going along with what was maybe publicly known at this point. There was some awareness that things were not all right, I guess, with her and just her very close friends. But she said she would do basically what he wanted to make him happy in the end. Poor girl. There's no support from the church to like speak up at all. Then there's no support from a psychiatrist to help with PTSD. Yeah, there's no help with the PTSD unless it's a minister helping her, which is like her husband. Yeah, but also then it goes back to the same church rules. So there's no diversity in any sort of counseling for her. Yeah. And there was like, I mean, the number one rule and even in that book that was like, is still in circulation, is still available for purpose that's supposed to teach young female adults how to be a good woman. They still say the number one rule is to submit to your husband. So how would you not assume that that was also true sexually? I don't agree, obviously, with Matthew about anything that is going on, clearly. But I can see emotionally and mentally a huge disconnect sexually because, again, like we were talking about this double opt-in, if there's no communication about sexual acts, then there can't ever be a consexual act. No. Well, Mary and Matthew ended up moving yet again for a youth pastor position that this time was promised to be upgraded to a pulpit position when the current minister retired. And this new congregation believed them to be happy and totally upstanding. They thought they had a beautiful young family. Some congregants and friends did notice that Matthew was authoritative and stern and that he was definitely controlling of Mary and their home, but that wasn't terribly unusual for this structure in the family in their faith at this time, at least. Behind closed doors, however, Mary would later allege that Matthew's verbal abuse was tipping into physical abuse. During an argument around this time, she contended that Matthew pushed something off the table while they were fighting. When she went to retrieve it and her face was down by the ground, Matthew kicked her in the face, like in the jaw. What? Yep. And she ended up having a lot of pain and tooth pain, and she was forced to go to the doctor. When she was at the doctor for that appointment, she told the doctor it was because she had suffered an accident in softball. Now, Mary had only a couple days later been witnessed in a softball game. This was like a church softball game getting hit in the face, like with a grounder that popped up and hit her in the face. So 
it could be that she was using the excuse of being hit in the face because, you know, the best lie is one that's the closest to the truth. It's possible also that the injury was as a result of him kicking her where she'd already been hit in the face. Yep. Or some people think like, well, we saw her get hit in the face with the softball. That was the injury. It wasn't him kicking her. We don't know. It's so hard when there's so much speculation. I'm sure it's so hard to write too. It's really hard to write. And I I mean, at the end, I'll get into my personal feelings, my personal speculation about this. But as far as giving you guys all the facts, I want to be completely even-handed about what both sides think so that you can also come to your own conclusion without, I mean, for the most part, our opinions coloring it. And I know you listen for our thoughts as well, which is why we can't help but sneak them in. But I will always endeavor to make a clear narrative for you that supports what everyone could possibly say about this case. Was there any difference in the two books? Not really. So Anne Rules was shorter. I think I get into the end, both of their kind of like breakdowns of what they thought. And I think that they kind of came to the same conclusion, but in different ways. Anne Rule is not only a true crime writer, but she was also a police officer. So she comes from a more clinical approach, I think, where Diane Fanning comes from a more journalistic approach. We'll talk about that later. So yes, shortly after this incident, Mary asked for a divorce, but Matthew refused to even consider it. He told her that if she left, he would hunt her down and find her. That's And it should be noted that people have said that the attitude towards divorce has since changed in the Church of Christ. But from what everybody reported about Mary and her congregation and the types of churches she was involved in, was that you were not allowed to get divorced unless there was infidelity. And abuse, even physical abuse, would not entitle you to be divorced and then be able to get remarried in the church. So you're supposed to take abuse. Well, it basically sounds like it was made for men because they can divorce their wives by saying they were unfaithful or... If the woman was truly unfaithful, they're allowed to get divorced and get remarried. But you can beat the shit out of your wife. And if she tries to get a divorce, she cannot get remarried in the church or be a part of that church anymore because they don't believe in the divorce. Unreal. Unreal. And I did see a criticism of Ann Rule's take on this that somebody said that's not true. That's not the way it is in the church anymore. So potentially it's not. But in this case, it was. And it was for Mary. Ugh, poor girl. So yeah, she felt very, very trapped at this point. At a different time, a congregant recalled Mary coming to church with a black eye. She told him that she had received it horsing around while playing with her daughters. And at the time, he actually said he didn't think much of it. He was like, okay, that's weird, but whatever. And then there was an occasion only a couple weeks after that where they were at a church event And he saw Mary in the room and she was like helping dole out food and she was smiling and she was flitting around and she was super social. And then Matthew entered the room and as soon as he entered the room, she completely like shut down and made sure to like go sit in her spot and like look down and not make eye contact. And like her whole persona changed. And the guy who was a congregant said at that point, he lost all respect for Matthew and he fully believed that he had abused his wife. There was also a dry cleaner that Mary went to who became concerned when Mary made frequent trips in to repeatedly remove blood from her bedspread. 
So Mary blamed the dog. I don't know how the dog was constantly bleeding on this bedspread. And at that point, the dry cleaner said that he said to her, like, he didn't really think that there was like abuse because he knew she was the pastor's wife. He was just like, you got to keep this dog off your bed. He said that that she had dry cleaned that bedspread so many times it was like wearing out. So he was like, that seems really weird that you can't just keep the dog off the bed. Yeah, shut the door. Yeah, the church secretary had a low opinion of their pastor as well, saying that he was emotionally and mentally berating and demanding and hard to work with. Lori, the secretary, said that Matthew was cruel to Mary and she had overheard him calling her fat. Like Mary would bring basically lunch in for the two of them every day. So she often noticed that like Mary wouldn't eat her lunch. He would eat his lunch that she brought, but she would hers would remain untouched. And then one day he actually she actually overheard him being like, You shouldn't even eat that. You've gotten so fat. It's so gross. And she was like pissed too. She went to him and she was like, You're supposed to lead by example. You are supposed to be the epitome of like a good man that the rest of like the people in the congregation are supposed to follow. You don't talk to your wife like that if you are a good person. The other thing that Lori said that disturbed her was that this entire time, Mary was also working full time. She desperately wanted to go back to school so she could teach special ed. And eventually she was able to go back. But she was also always working at like a drugstore, different places just to help support the family. And when she was working, she would drop off the kids at the church if he was working as well. And she said, instead of putting the kids in the church daycare so they could play with all the other kids, he would lock them in his office, like literally lock and key, lock them away. And when she asked him why he didn't just put them in the daycare or even let them run around and like she could watch them, he said, no, I want to keep them safe. And so she was like, this is overly controlling that he's not even letting them participate with the other children. Others, though, only had glowing recollections of tenderness between the couple. They said that Matthew constantly was talking about his wife and how much he loved her, how much he loved his kids. They said that there were exchanges where Matthew and Mary didn't even realize anyone was watching them, but they would see him like take off his jacket if it was cold or raining and put it over his shoulders. And they were very affectionate. They were always holding hands or kissing. So everyone else was like, they seem perfectly fine. They seemed happy. And he was mostly well known as a compassionate and good leader. Neighbors also reported this kind of at odds characterization of their relationship and of Matthew in general. One neighbor claimed that Matthew had repeatedly threatened to shoot their pet Rottweiler. Mm. He's basically said, if that animal leaves your yard, if she comes over to my yard, I'm killing her. And I want you to know because you have to be warned. And so she was like, that doesn't seem like good pastor behavior. No, that doesn't seem like good human behavior. <laughs> no, <laughs> unless like the and now I grew up with Rottweilers. My first dog ever was a Rottweiler. So I'm protective of them. I also had a pit bull. So I definitely am protective of breeds that sometimes get a bad reputation. And yeah, if any dog is violent, yes, of course, you should be concerned. But it didn't sound like that was the case with this dog at all, who was kind of like an older, like lethargic one. It was just like that time in history, Rottweilers had really bad reputations. There was another guy, too, who was like a police officer, I believe. And his grandmother 
lived across the street or he lived across the street. Either way, he was somehow related to this neighbor situation and his grandmother passed away and he held a memorial service and he saw Matthew coming across the street and he thought that him being a minister, he was coming to offer him words of comfort or say something at this terrible moment. And instead, apparently Matthew screamed at them because some guest had brought a dog that was barking a lot. So he clearly had dog issues. Yeah, I was going to say he just hates dogs, apparently. It sounds like he hates dogs, which is never a good test of somebody's humanity. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a red flag. (laughs) Just any sort of animal hatred is no bueno unless you have some tragic backstory. So... I guess at that point, that guy started calling him the Tasmanian devil because he went into such a wild dervish, like yelling about this dog at his grandmother's memorial service. And he said that there was, yeah, there was other people in the community that felt the same way. But they also had some very, very good friends in this same neighborhood. They were called Bob and Yvonne Dennis, and they got extremely close to the family. They were also living in this neighborhood together, and they said that they honestly never saw any of these behaviors, and they had no idea what people were talking about, and they could not even think of a single red flag with this family. They seemed completely solid to them. So again, we're getting a lot of contradictory evidence about how they operated, which is why I said you can never really know what's going on behind closed doors. And all of these people, it's just these small snippets of these moments with these other human beings that are characterizing how they see the person forever, which is what we do. It's what we do as humans. We, it's actually very smart of us evolutionarily to take the evidence that we're being shown and to put it up in our cross and say, well, this is dangerous. This is not a good person. Or this seems like a good person I can be around because it's, it's about our, our safety and our children's safety. So there's nothing wrong with jumping to judgment. It just means that before <laughs> we villainize people, we need to like take a step back and think, were they having a bad day or was what was going on? And that's what makes cases like this so difficult because when we find out what happens later, somebody who says that guy was a dick on the day of my grandmother's memorial, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a killer or an abuser or whatever. It just means maybe he was bad, had a bad day and he had a bad relationship with dogs. I don't know. My dad got bit by a German shepherd when he was little and he's never really loved big breeds because of it. Like it chased him and bit him and he still like loves animals. Yeah. I mean, it's not an excuse. No. But I'm just saying it's like that's this this case after me up, man, because it's like all over the place where this person said this, this person said that. Life served up one more curveball, however, when Matthew was denied the pulpit minister job that he'd been promised and the position went to an outsider brought in to replace the outgoing pastor. So Matthew was really pissed at this point, but he was able to finally find a pulpit position in Selmer, Tennessee. So the family was forced to move once more, but this time they believed that the move would be permanent. Matthew was given a salary of 50 grand a year and use of the parsonage, which was a nice but modest three-bedroom townhouse. The increased pay and home was a blessing as Mary had discovered she was pregnant once more. Her excitement, though, was dashed when Matthew was bitterly disappointed at an ultrasound that discovered that their third child was a girl. (laughs) Mary felt like she was blamed for the sex of the baby, 
when Mary told her that the Winklers had historically always had boys and here he was with three girls. Oh my God, what a tragedy. Now, sources outside the marriage, however, reported that Matthew expressed no such disappointment and it was true that he seemed proud when Brianna Eloise Winkler was born on March 9th, 2005. They said that he was doing the sermon like with the baby on his chest and everything and that he seemed like delighted with his daughter. Brianna was a beautiful but medically compromised child. She was also premature. And at first, the doctors believed that she had a liver malfunction, but it turned out to be a false alarm. However, while she was in the hospital, which was for an extended stay, they definitely determined that she had respiratory problems. They were the types of problems that they hoped that she would just grow out of because, again, premature. Now, at the new church in Selmer, Matthew proved to be a very charismatic minister. In his brief tenure there, he increased church membership from 140 to 200 congregants. Unlike the previous church, no one in Selmer could recall any sort of disagreement or abuse or evidence that something was amiss in the family. One neighbor and congregant who was trained as a social worker, so therefore adept at noting red flags, picked up on absolutely nothing. She often watched the children. She interacted with the family a ton. Matthew's new church secretary agreed. She said that the family seemed very happy. She never heard yelling or demeaning comments like her predecessor had. Mary came in most days to share lunch with Matthew, and the secretary reported that they were a wholesome, all-American married couple. Behind the wholesome facade, it did seem that Mary and Matthew were potentially keeping some secrets, however. Now, these are secrets that range from, oh, who gives a shit, to, oh, that's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, oh, who gives a shit category was that they both indulged in tobacco, which was verboten in the church. So he chewed and she snuck cigarettes. So nobody cares about that. I guess it would have been like a bit of a scandal, a very minor scandal, if they had known the pastor and his wife were using tobacco when it was prohibited by the church. But still, like from a, you know, a secular standpoint, that's not that bad. It's not. But I feel like if you're the preacher, you're preaching what to do and not do. You shouldn't be doing shit. Yeah, it was still hypocritical is the point. So they were doing that. And then, of course, we're not going to get into all the details now. It looks like there was some unsavory sexual stuff going on at Matthew's behest, which we will get into the veracity of whether or not those things were happening later on. And then lastly, Mary was either purposely or inadvertently passing bad checks at this time, which is not a good look for a minister's wife. It's not a good look for anyone. No. Matthew had put Mary in charge of the family's finances, which was in a like relatively uncommon practice. Like later on, Matthew's dad even says that it was not typical in these churches or congregation, or at least in theirs, for the head of the household who has to control everything to put his wife in charge of all of the family finances? I'd imagine, yeah. But maybe he was doing it for a certain reason? Yeah. So in any case, Mary had complete control over the family finances, or though it would seem. And in fact, she complained often that he was critical of her bookkeeping skills. So it seemed at some point the family had fallen into some debt. Now, they weren't making all that much money. They have three kids, and they also apparently had bought two houses in previous, like, jobs and towns. 
and they hadn't sold their old house right away. So for a while, they had to carry two mortgages. So it was up to Mary to try to write this financial ship. And in fall of 2005, probably looking to make some quick extra money to help her family, it appeared that Mary fell prey to a Nigerian prince type scam. Now, this one was not the Nigerian prince exact scam, but it was the same idea. It was something about oil in Canada and that they needed X amount of money to be able to get this oil out of wherever. And that if she sent them, you know, this check, then they would send her a return check for this or, you know, the same idea about the type of scam. And so she ended up sending the scammers her name, address, and checks to cover several thousands of dollars of whatever they said they needed or, you know, the transfer fees or whatever. And she thought that she was going to be getting $250,000 back. Ah, that one hurts. This was not a good one. It soon became clear And they sent like scam checks to her. Like, here's the first deposit of your money, like to make her believe that it was going to work. And she even deposited one of these checks that was supposed to be for like $6,000 to like cover some of her expenses or something, which of course bounced. And what didn't bounce was the checks that she had sent them. So panicked, she began to move money around and she started to do something that's very illegal, which was she would open a checking account with $100 cash. Then she'd go to another bank and try to cash a check she wrote to herself for like a few thousand dollars. Okay. And so originally they would give her the money because she was cashing it. And I think also she had a good reputation in this community as the pastor's wife. And then it would bounce and they would call her and they would say, well, what the hell? You need to figure out your overdraft situation. So this game of moving money around was going very poorly for her. And this house of cards was about to collapse by March of 2006. Now, even more for the financial implications for the family, check kiting, as it's called, could result if they can't repay the banks in Mary being arrested and doing like actual jail time, which of course, would be a very big blight on Matthew's reputation as he has finally achieved this pulpit minister position. So this was bad all around. And this was a really tough thing for Mary because she'd finally been able to go back to school and she was about to start substitute teaching as part of her training, which is all she ever wanted to do. She All she ever wanted to do was be a substitute teacher. And so basically now the banks were calling her and saying, like, you need to come in. Matthew was signed on these. They were like counter signers of these accounts. So they were like, you need to come in. You also need to bring Matthew in and you need to figure out the situation. So I guess on March 20th, 2006, she ended up talking to at least one of these bank representatives who said, we need to see you and Matthew in the office like tomorrow or the next day, or we're going to have to begin legal proceedings. And she requested that they take Matthew's name off the account. She's like, I just want to deal with this myself. Can you just like, I'll talk to you tomorrow, but I don't want my husband to have to, which to certain people means that she was obviously hiding this from Matthew and he didn't know. And she was trying to deal with this herself. Or she's terrified of him. Yeah. 
basically they told her at that point, you can't take an account holder's name off of an account if it's overdrafted. So you both have to come in and deal with this. On March 21st, the next day, Mary began her first day of substitute teaching at Selmer Elementary, but several colleagues noted that she seemed on edge and took several panicked phone calls throughout the day. After school and the girls' extracurriculars, Mary took them to a video store where they rented the film Chicken Little and then picked up Pizza Hut for dinner. All of the children were put to bed between 8 and 9 p.m. Mary and Matthew reportedly did argue about the finances, though exactly how much Mary revealed about their precarious and criminal situation is still unclear. So it seemed like eventually this fight petered off. Everyone calmed down. They had also rented a movie for themselves, so I did not find out what that one was. And they put it in, but then Mary fell asleep while they were watching the movie. So eventually Matthew just moved her to the bed and they went to bed. At 6.45 p.m. the next day, Wednesday, March 22, 2006, the congregation of Matthew's church was growing concerned. Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility? That's a staggering statistic and one that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. In fact, it took me two years to get pregnant with my firstborn. But we need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures. That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. You'll get insight into your hormone levels, your ovarian reserve, aka how many eggs you have compared to other women your age, and other important fertility factors. The results go deep into what every hormone means, and you can also download the results to review with your doctor for the next steps. Traditional testing can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder, you can get $20 off your test. Yeah, I definitely wish that I had known about this back Seriously. in 2016, <laughs> 2017, for sure. If you want kids today or maybe one day in the future, clinically sound information about your body can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. Modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. The Winkler family had not shown up for the regular midweek Bible study, which Matthew was supposed to lead. And nor had Mary or Matthew called the church secretary, the deacons, or any of the elders to explain why they would be absent. Okay. Yeah. So they're missing in action, which is unlike them. Several calls were made to the parsonage, and those two went unanswered. So one of the church members was a vice principal of the elementary school and noted that the girls had not attended school that day as well, nor their normal extracurricular activities. So the family is very much missing in action. After the Bible study, a handful of male church elders examined the parsonage from the outside, noting that the Winkler's minivan was missing, but the TV appeared on. They could also hear the phone ringing from the outside. 
The men received a ring of keys from the church secretary, but after trying several of the keys on both the front and back door, it was clear that none of them were going to open up the house. The garage, however, was open. So they went into the garage to see if there was like any place that there was a spare key hidden potentially. And there was, there was a spare key hidden in a tackle box. So now it's around 9 p.m. and they were able to enter the house. Now, this this house was very tidy and it was dark, though the TV was on and there was a light glowing from the back master bedroom. No foul play was apparent. The house looked exactly as it usually did. It was kind of as though the family left on a vacation and just forgot to turn the TV and the light off. Okay, so... They were shouting for Matthew and Mary, and they were walking through the home. And basically, the master bedroom was already in the back, all the way in the back. And there, they discovered a horrific scene. Preacher Matthew Winkler lay on his back in a circle of crusted blood. Scarlet-colored froth was apparent around his mouth and nostrils. Oh, my God. Not what I expected. Not what I expected. I mean, not what anyone expected out of this situation, given the personalities at hand. Yes. So one of the men was a doctor who performed a quick examination and determined that Matthew was, in fact, dead. It appeared he had been shot in the back. What? Perhaps in the back while he was sleeping, even because he was still wearing night clothes and... Even though he was on the ground, he was tangled in bedclothes like he had tried to potentially flee. So at this point, they're terrified for the rest of the family. So one of the men checked the basement and he was worried that he was going to find the rest of the family down there. They were not. So Mary and the girls are gone. She has an eight, six and one year old daughter. Now, They're very, very concerned. If someone was strong enough and forceful enough to kill their very tall, 230-pound athletic pastor, then what hope was there for a 5'1 woman and her three very small children? So the men at that point called 911 and they began to pray. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation and local police force answered the call and immediately began to process the scene as well as put out an Amber Alert for the family and Mary's minivan. At this point, they had no idea whether Mary and the girls had been kidnapped, killed, or if Mary was a potential perpetrator. Or if they were out of the house when this happened. Yeah, but it seemed like based on how long he had been dead, she should have discovered the body at that point. They were thinking that the time of death happened at least like 12 hours earlier so it seemed very weird that she hadn't come home and found it if she was just out of the home at that point so matthew had been killed by a shotgun blast to the back and then it seemed as though he'd attempted to crawl to the phone that had been on the bedside table but the phone was disconnected from the wall so that means that somebody had purposely unplugged the phone so he could not call 911. Okay. It didn't take long for investigators to discover Mary's financial issues and check-kiting allegations, and they were now soon concerned 
they were thinking up until this point that she and the girls had been harmed or kidnapped. Now, when they find out that there's all this financial problems, the phones disconnected, they're kind of worried that this could be a family annihilator situation because so often in those situations, somebody is compelled by money issues. Yeah. They've hidden them. They're hiding them. They don't want their family or their children to know what happened. They convince themselves it's better if everybody dies than find out what happened or live with their mother going to jail. Now, it is rare for family annihilators to be women, but not impossible. According to an Oxygen article from 2021 by Gina Tran, women make up 9% of all family annihilators. It's still a small amount. It's extremely small, yeah. but possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the whole thing. You're like When you hear hoofbeats, you should think horses and not zebras, but every once in a while, it could be zebra. Yep. But in any case, this is becoming urgent because either they are kidnapped or Mary could be of grave danger to these children. Yes. It did not take long for them to locate the Winkler's minivan. In Orange Beacon, Alabama, police officers spotted a vehicle in motion that had the same license plate number as the minivan on the Amber Alert. They could not at that time ascertain if the driver was male or female, nor if there were any children actively present or alive in the van. After calling for backup, they pulled the minivan over in a parking lot of a Winn-Dixie grocery store. And at that point, Mary Winkler did step out with her hands up. In the back, the three girls were crying but alive. Yeah, I didn't have the feeling that she was going to kill them. No, I don't think she yeah. was either. That is not my feeling yeah. of what was going on here. Immediately, Allie, that's the second born, and Patricia, the eldest, told the officers that their father had been attacked by a bad man who had robbed them and that their mother had taken them to hide them from this bad man and that they said that she had said, we're going to go. We have to hide. Daddy wants us to go, but I'm going to take shotgun as protection. Okay. In the back of the van, they discovered the shotgun that had definitively been used to kill Matthew Winkler. Okay. Yeah, it's not looking good. Uh Mary. <laughs> Mary was taken into custody immediately. She seemed dazed and almost relieved to be arrested. Oh, the poor babies. Yeah, the poor babies. They were about to go have dinner at Waffle House. Aww. And so the police officers took them to McDonald's and then they got to go in like the child victim like playroom area with some of the police officers like wives and loved ones and remain there and get some statements until Ugh. Matthew's parents were able to come get them. It's really, 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 really sad. Meanwhile... Mary says nothing. She doesn't ask whether, where's Matthew? Is he alive? Is he dead? She doesn't say anything. And they said that as soon as she got into the police cruiser in custody, she fell asleep. Ah. Which is really interesting because on Small Town Murder, they mentioned this. On the David Simon book, Homicide, he talks about how homicide detectives often speak about when they nab the actual killer. The actual killer just falls asleep. Because they're so exhausted from... From hiding and worrying and worrying when the other shoe is going to drop. So when the other shoe finally drops, they just pass out. They're like, done. Where an innocent person freaks out more. They haven't had any shoes dropping. They haven't like worried about this. So they're like, 
why the fuck am I being interrogated? What is going on? I need to see a lawyer. I need to see somebody. What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And they're up and like crazy. And I would feel the same way. But people who are guilty just fall asleep. I mean, it also makes sense because she's probably been suffering with her emotional trauma for so long as well. She's probably just exhausted. She was also some six and a half hours away from where they lived. So there had to be some driving through the night going on here. They did spend the previous night in a hotel. They went to the beach. She took them for ice cream. I mean, she was not trying to get to Mexico here. She was trying to give those girls a nice experience. Yeah, some semblance of normalcy. Yeah. So when questioned, eight-year-old Patricia said that she heard a loud boom while she was sleeping that startled her awake. She thought maybe her father had knocked over the nightstand. So she ran to her parents' door and she saw that her father was lying face down on the floor and he told her through groans to call 911. She said he was moaning and groaning at that point. Her little sister, Allie, followed her to the doorway. And when Mary saw both of them standing in the doorway, she closed the door. Okay. When she opened it again, she told the terrified little girls that an ambulance was going to come get their father and he was going to be okay, but that they had to leave so that the bad man who had done that to their father would not get them too, and that they would run away to somewhere nice and stay there until daddy was better. The traumatized children were placed in the custody of Matthew's parents, who were, of course, struggling to come to terms with how their son had been shockingly murdered, how to comfort their small grandchildren, and also how to forgive Mary, who by all likelihood at this point seemed like she had 100% killed Matthew. Now, it was important in their religion to practice forgiveness. But they said in order to practice forgiveness, the person who is guilty has to confess to their crime and ask for forgiveness. So they came to her while she was still in custody and they hugged her and they said, Mary, we love you. You can tell us what happened. And she just didn't say anything. She was like, I love you too. I know you'll take good care of the girls, but she refused to say anything about what had happened. So this was really confusing for them because they were trying to find a way to forgive her and she wasn't giving them the exact verbiage that they needed. And she knows the rules. She also knows the rules and she's not giving them that, but she's probably not dumb enough to confess to a crime while she's in custody. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So yeah, Mary was kind of spacey and odd in her initial police interrogations. She seemed to neither like fully confirm her actions, but she did not deny that she killed her husband even once. And they were one month shy of their 10th wedding anniversary. She did reveal in a very oblique way, like, I know what I've done is bad and I should be punished. I should be punished as much as you can punish me. So she kind of said that, but she didn't say she shot him. She didn't say why. She said also that she wanted to pay whatever consequences she had to and that she was not the first thing they were asking her was like were you running because you were trying to take these girls away were you going to harm the girls and she was like no I just knew that something bad had happened and that I was gonna have to go away and their father was away and I wanted them to have a nice memory and a nice day and I thought we should go to the beach and I guess that 
Orange Beach, Alabama, was a direct shot exactly south from Selmer, Tennessee. So in her mind, it was like the closest beach. Just drive south until you hit it. She said that she absolutely was not trying to escape with the girls. At the time of her arrest, she only had $123 left to her name. And she said that she had intended to basically see how far she could make it and then just pay with enough gas to get home, drop the daughters off with the grandparents, and then turn herself in. Ah, that's what she said she was going to do. When pressed about the actual murder, Mary said she did not remember retrieving or shooting the gun at all. She said that the first thing she really remembered was a loud boom and then that Matthew was bleeding and then on the floor. She said in this initial interview, though she later denied it, that he turned to her and said, why? And she said, I'm sorry. And then she just turned and took the girls and ran. Several attempts were made to figure out the motive behind the crime. But Mary was very resolute that she did not want Matthew's name smeared in the press. So every time they tried to say, why would you kill your husband? Why did this happen? She was like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want the media to find out in like so many words. I think she said like they to find out. She basically was like, I want him to have a good reputation. So she refused to say what was going on. And when she was really pressed a lot, she said, quote, I guess my ugly just came out. Now, this would be a big media sound. Yeah, I'd say. About how this woman who killed her godly pastor husband just said, well, I guess my ugly just came out. And Anne Rule said that this was an unfortunate choice of words. Well, Diane Fanning also brought up that this was something that reportedly Matthew said to her when he criticized her. So when they got into a fight or when she was trying to assert herself, he would say to her, well, your ugly's just coming out now, isn't it? Or something. So this was potentially, I think, documented that he had said this to her. So without context, it seems very flippant and confessional. But according to Diane Fanning's book, this was something Matthew said to her. It could have been like triggering. It could have been absolutely triggering. And in her official statement to the police while she was still in Alabama, her official statement kind of hinted at a motivation without saying it explicitly. She said at the end I was upset at him because he had really been on me lately, criticizing me for things, the way I walk, what I eat, everything. It was just building up to this point. I was just tired of it. I guess I just got to a point and snapped. So upon Mary's incarcerated arrival back in Selmer, Tennessee, the church was completely divided about whether or not they should support Mary. Obviously, some people thought that she had murdered her husband in cold blood and therefore should not receive the support of the church. Others were definitely trying to follow in, you know, the example of Jesus in practicing forgiveness and empathy. One parishioner who stood in support of the pastor's wife hooked her up with an absolute top flight defense attorney named Steve Faris, who agreed to represent Mary pro bono. Whoa. Yeah. Which Ann Rule makes a point that he got incredible national 
coverage for this case. So there's pro bono, but there's also an awareness of what cases are going to hit in the media and what is some very, very good advertising and marketing. And this case was that. And I have to say, Steve was a very good defense attorney. I am still like torn about everything that happened. And that's what a good defense attorney does. They make you question the prosecution's story about their line of facts or even what the police say is the evidence. And you, if you can, they get you to a point where you don't believe what maybe even the physical evidence is saying, then you've got a very good defense attorney. So until Steve stepped up and came in, he also brought along another exceptional defense attorney named Leslie Ballin, who became his co-counsel. Mary had remained extremely hush-hush about any motivation, about any guilt, about anything. She did not have a bad word to say about Matthew or his family and even spoke very glowingly about his parents to the police and to the press. Because of that, and despite their grief at the time, Dan and Diane had been working pretty closely with Mary to try to continue a relationship between Mary and her daughters because she wasn't saying anything demeaning about their family to the press. However, after Mary got her attorneys, the defense began to try this case in the media a little bit and reveal what Mary's motivations were before it even got to trial. In November 2006, an issue of Glamour magazine was published that claimed through interviews with Mary's family and friends that Matthew was controlling and abusive mentally, emotionally, physically, and even sexually. Mary's father, Clark, made an appearance on Good Morning America, where he claimed he had witnessed his daughter covered in bruises at Matthew's hand and that Matthew had also sought to alienate Mary from her loved ones and support system. The Winkler family was horrified by these allegations and immediately pulled all support of Mary, which I don't blame them, to be honest. They had been trying to very equitably deal with this relationship. They seemed like to genuinely not believe that there was any abuse. So I would be upset. We've covered cases before where... The defense attorneys seek to assassinate the character of the victim, and it always disgusts us. This is a case where it's very a gray area. Did he actually abuse her or not? And there's usually only a gray area if there's some people who have seen. Yes, exactly. Now, there was people that saw him being demeaning to her, the way he spoke to her. There were people that saw her with bruises, but no one had ever seen him be anything physically demonstrably controlling at all or abusive. So also, I'm sure if you're in front of each other's families, you're not going to be actively hitting somebody. He's a pastor, for goodness sake. So this is why it is a very confusing situation. And it's also why a lot of sexual assault and domestic violence cases are very hard to win because these are things that happen behind closed doors and it's only the two people that are involved in it. And for people's mental health, victims can pretend everything is fine. They can even continue having a relationship with their abuser that seems on the surface totally fine. So my gut instinct is to trust Mary, that this did happen. 
But as we always say, there's only one person dead here. And so we have to look at how we got to this situation and if there was any other options because murder is never an option. No. So basically now the Winklers were totally pissed about the fact that basically her family and her attorneys, they were going on like Larry King. They are going on Nancy Grace. They're making the media rounds. Full press circuit. Full press circuit saying that Matthew was a piece of shit who did unspeakable things to his wife and drove her to this situation. And then, so Matthew's loved ones were horrified. They denied categorically that any of this was true. And they decided that they were going to go for full custody of the girls. And by the time she was released on bail, they did everything in their power to deny any sort of visitation, which was emotionally damaging to Mary. But again, even if she had a reason, she did kill their son. And now there's a full-on smear campaign going on in the media. So... I mean, it's just like all of the people's actions in this, except for potentially Matthews, are kind of understandable. Yeah. And also, there's probably good for the kids to have some consistency, too. Like, if mom might be going away for a long time, like... Yeah. So, this was just a bad situation all around. They also said in documents that... They had already been alarmed about the way that Mary was speaking about Matthew's murder because apparently on some early visit where they went to visit her in prison, which is also not great for kids to have to do, but she said something like the bad man is going to get caught or something like she continued the lie of this bad man did it to your dad because she couldn't admit she did it or she doesn't remember doing it. And that they said was antithesis to their belief of honesty, but also Scary to the girls to think that there's still a bad man out there that could hurt them. Yeah. So this was altogether a very bad and nasty situation. The custody battle would go on and get increasingly heated. And of course, the ones who suffered the most were the girls who were torn between their love for their mother and grappling with this horrific thing that she had done because the grandparents eventually said to them, no, your mother did this. There's no shadowy bad man who did this. Your mother killed your dad. Yeah. And you can only imagine the emotional devastation that would wreak on children. While preparing for trial, Mary was psychologically evaluated and two of the psychologists determined that Mary had been suffering from PTSD since the death of her sister, Patricia, and the trauma had been compounded by her lack of therapeutic care at the time. They believed that the murder could have occurred in a disassociative state caused by her PTSD. I mean, it happens to war vets and people who have had PTSD trauma from other events. So I don't understand why it couldn't happen from this. So they did do a multiphasic personality inventory, which is essentially an assessment that helps ascertain whether somebody is either trying to falsely make a sunny version of their mental health or on the criminal side, trying to pretend to be mentally ill when they are not in order to come up with a good defense. And two separate psychologists determined that Mary actually attempted to appear as though she was mentally stable when it was clear she had a lot of issues in her thinking, trusting, and psychological functioning. So 
she was 100% not trying to look like she had PTSD for a defense. In fact, she was going the other way and trying to appear that she was completely emotionally and mentally stable. Yeah, probably because she wants to take care of her kids. And it's what she's been doing her whole life. If she's truly had PTSD since her sister died when she was 13 years old, then my guess is that she's been trying to appear emotionally and mentally stable for all of those years. They also found that she was suffering from depression. In an effort to give her days purpose and structure, and also, you know, in general, this is a good thing to do to show that you want to be a productive member of society. While she was out on bail, she got a job at the same dry cleaners where she had once brought her bloody sheets. And her boss characterized her as an excellent employee who is punctual, conscientious, and had a good rapport with the regular customers. Adrift without her children and in legal limbo, Mary relied heavily on her boss, his partner, her family, and a very small circle of loyal friends to get her through this fraught time. On New Year's Eve, a small group of these people that supported her went to the New York Grill to celebrate where Mary was captured on cell phone camera smoking cigarettes by the bar. Now, she was not actually raising a drink to her mouth in these pictures, but there was a open beer bottle next to her in some of these pictures. And the witness claimed that she was imbibing at the time. The people who were with her said she was not. She was actually just drinking soda. This only matters because obviously it's a no-no in her religion as well. And maybe bad for her defense that she's out on New Year's Eve, smoking cigarettes, drinking, having a great time. Even worse, the witness claimed that they had been a bit turned off by this woman who had killed her pastor husband just out there having a great time on New Year's Eve. And one of the witness's friends approached the table and said, are you the preacher killer? And Mary replied very quickly to this, yeah, you want to be next? To all of the laughter of the people that she was with. And apparently this guy sold the story and the cell phone pictures to a local news organization and it went to the national news organizations it was picked up of course and that also became a big part of her upcoming trial because she is going to be painted as this timid abused pastor's wife and she's out there on new year's eve partying it up making quips making light of the fact that she killed her husband drinking and smoking cigarettes so speaking of trials, Mary's officially began in April of 2007, and it became a national sensation, especially when shocking bombshells were revealed throughout the testimony of witnesses and Mary Carol Freeman Winkler herself. So the prosecution argued that Mary had killed Matthew with premeditation to prevent him from discovering the check fraud, the scam she had fallen for, subsequent debt, and potential criminal trouble that she had landed the family in. Bank employees testified about the check kiting, the rising panic that Mary displayed, and Mary's request that her husband's name be taken off the accounts. Anticipating a defense based on Matthew's alleged abuse, Matthew's family and colleagues testified that Matthew and Mary had been a loving couple with no evidence that Matthew had been abusive toward his wife at all. The saddest testimony was on the part of little Patricia, who was brought to tears on the stand while describing, which is just, I hate when they do that. 
I mean, the defense attorney made a big point that it was the prosecution that called and forced the child to testify. Yeah, that's not cool. And so she had to describe her father's last minutes and how he begged her to call 911. And then, and Cross, the defense attorney's like, well, do you love your mother? And she's like, yeah, of course I do. I don't love what happened. So she's this poor child is crying because I can't. It's just, it's so heartbreaking. The defense argued that Matthew had been controlling, abusive, and had terrorized Mary to the point of triggering her PTSD. They brought up the psychologist's diagnosis that she had been in a disassociative state and had perhaps only meant to frighten Matthew with a shotgun, but slipped on some decorative pillows that she had been standing on and maybe accidentally shot him, which she doesn't even remember if that is the case. That's just one potential theory. They further claimed that the financial fraud had been at Matthew's direction. They contended that he had only made it look like Mary was in charge of the family finances. He was always in charge of the finances. He had instructed her several times to apply for all of these sweepstakes and lottery type things because they needed money. And so they said that when this letter came in, he may have as Mary said she did, believed it was like one of the things that they had entered coming back to them. And they contended that he too had been duped. And after the fact, when they realized that collectively with obviously Matthew making the decision had made this terrible financial decision that he then instructed her to move the money around and defraud the banks. Mary's attorneys argued that this would be much more in line with how their family was run. And several witnesses did testify that Mary did not lift a finger unless she was explicitly instructed to do so. So this financial fraud behind her husband's back would seem very out of character. They claimed that Matthew had actually asked her to remove him from the accounts so he could avoid any criminal prosecution. Witnesses testified to evidence of physical abuse, though, again, none of the people had actually witnessed Matthew hurting, striking, or pushing her in any way, but there had been bruises and at least the one black eye. Her siblings testified at Matthew's attempts to keep her away from them and how she appeared abused and withdrawn when they were allowed to see her. Mary herself testified that Matthew had demeaned, abused, and threatened her for the majority of their marriage, though she said the physical abuse had only begun in the last couple years. She claimed that he had threatened to kill her, especially when she would attempt to discuss divorce, and he would tell her that he planned to hunt her down, find her, even once telling her that he would cut the brakes of her van. This is the worst part. She depicted, so this is, trigger warning for sexual domestic violence, sexual abuse. You got it. She depicted their sex life as abusive and physically painful, claiming that Matthew had made her watch porn against her will, as well as participate in sexual acts like oral sex and anal sex. She said she never screamed or anything in the moment, but afterwards she would beg him never to perform anal sex on her again. And she would tell him she was uncomfortable. She said that she was concerned at the pain and that it was so great that she thought that she would be medically injured by the act of the anal sex. And he reportedly told her, 
that it wasn't a big deal. And if there was any damage, it was just going to be easy enough to fix with a surgery. I mean, that would explain the bloody sheets, too. Exactly. A show-and-tell moment came when Mary's attorney provided five-inch, for lack of a better vernacular term, stripper heels out of a bag as well as a wig, and Mary identified the objects as things Matthew forced her to wear while they engaged in sex. Mary was also concerned about the children, she said. She said that Matthew's spankings had become frequent and harsh, that one of the girls had ended up with a dislocated elbow after an afternoon in Matthew's care. Oh, no. And most chillingly, he was prone to pinching their noses and covering their mouths while they cried in an effort to get them to stop crying. So Mary said on the morning of Wednesday, March 22nd, that she had been awoken at 6.15 by both the alarm and a screaming one-year-old Brianna. She said that she had been pushed out of bed by Matthew. He had kicked her in the small of her back, basically to push her out of bed and instructed her to shut the baby up. Oh, my God. Mary said she fell out of bed and she was still, like, recovering from being kicked out of bed but getting up when Matthew, apparently in a rage, actually got out of bed as well and ran to Brianna's room. When she got herself off the ground and went to Brianna's room, she found her husband pinching the baby's nostrils together with one hand while he covered her mouth with the other. Oh, my God. That gives me, like, so much anxiety. So Mary said she managed to fight the baby out of his hands and get him away from the baby and then comfort Brianna back to sleep and then lay her back down in the crib. She said while she was doing this, Matthew went back to bed. She said that she was angry that he had done this with their two other children prior. But right now she was very, very concerned about Brianna given that she had diagnosed respiratory issues. Yes. So Mary said that she did know exactly where Matthew kept his shotgun, and she also claimed that he had threatened her with the shotgun several times throughout their marriage. And she said that she could not remember going to get the gun. This is the part where, like, the disassociative state picked up. But she did recall that she was angry, and she wanted his attention, and she wanted to tell him that he could not do this anymore. With his back to her, Mary believes that she requested that Mary turn around and talk with her. She wanted to tell him that he had to stop abusing the children that way. And when he did not acknowledge her, somehow, she has no idea how, she doesn't remember pulling the trigger, the gun went off. She said that she did recall that she was standing on a pile of decorative pillows that had been knocked off the bed. Possible. She never intended to shoot him. She slipped and, you know, pulled the trigger. She didn't remember pulling the trigger, so she couldn't say for sure. But she also did not deny that she did, clearly. Yeah, it's also hard when you, like, pick up the gun with the intention. Yeah. I mean, the safety's off there. Yeah. When asked why she hadn't just gotten a divorce before it got so bad, she claimed she had begged for one. But divorce was not allowed in her religion unless there was infidelity. And not only did abuse not count, but she didn't think that anyone would believe that the good pastor was abusing her and the children and anally assaulting her. So she felt extremely trapped. Now, the divorce stuff seems feasible enough that she would feel 
unbelievably trapped. But there were some contradictory bits of physical evidence in Mary's version of events that we should bring up. Number one, Patricia testified that before the door closed, she had seen that the room was totally normal. Everything was as it is, except for her father was on the ground. When it opened again, she noticed that the phone was unplugged because he had been saying, call 911. So of course she would notice the phone. Yep. So that would imply that the only person who was in the room unplugged the phone because obviously Matthew wouldn't have. So Mary must have intentionally prevented him from getting medical help. And secondly, his bladder had been full to the brim at his autopsy beyond what would be comfortable for a person, which indicated to the prosecution that he had been fully asleep. Had he gotten up to pinch Brianna's nose, it would seem almost impossible that he wouldn't even just stop at the bathroom on his way back. You had to walk by, I guess, the bathroom from Brianna's room to the bedroom. So okay, a normal person would get up. Even if he did that first, he would probably pee and void his bowels and then go back to sleep. So that made her story seem implausible. The prosecution contended that this meant Mary was lying and Matthew had never woken up at all. In closing, they presented that evidence as contradictory to Mary's sob story. How can anyone call it self-defense or protecting her child when he is shot in the back while sleeping? They concluded their closing statement with, it's not up for you to decide if Matthew was a good guy or a bad guy, or if he could have been a better husband, or if she could have been a better wife. That has nothing to do with what you decide. Your attention must be focused on March 22nd, the instant she pulled that trigger. Ladies and gentlemen, has the state carried its burden of proof that Matthew Winkler was unlawfully killed? Has the state carried its burden of proof that he was intentionally killed, that it was an intentional act? I submit that it has. And has the state of Tennessee carried its burden of proof that this act was premeditated? I believe, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that the facts that we have presented prove that. Truth dictates and justice demands one verdict, and that is guilty of murder in the first degree. The defense closed by arguing that the state had not actually carried its burden of proof, nor had they presented any evidence that would prove that she had committed this crime with premeditation, which... I agree with him there because if she unplugged the phone after the fact, that would strike me as she did not, even based on their own arguments, I would say that's not premeditation if it was plugged in before and then not after because she didn't think those things through. They also talked about how she fled with literally nothing. She brought a pair of socks for the baby. She didn't pack. She wasn't planned for a trip. She had to like stop at a Walmart or something and buy the girls like swimsuits. There was no premeditation involved, I believe, in this situation. They claim that throughout the arrest and the interrogation, all Mary had wanted to do was protect Matthew's name and legacy as well as protect her children. The jury was given a menu of options to select from. They could vote guilty of first-degree murder, which would carry a minimum 51-year sentence, second-degree murder, which could mean up to 20 years or more in prison, or a lesser charge like voluntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, or criminal negligence, which would land her in jail from anywhere from one to six years max. The jury ended up deliberating over three days and returned the verdict of... Okay, so I'm going to tell you on first degree and you tell me yes or no. First degree? No. You're right. 
second degree? Probably. No. No. Okay. The next serious one was voluntary manslaughter. Yes. Yes, you are correct. So, yes, she was convicted on voluntary manslaughter, which carries a three to six year sentence. Okay. And hopefully they're like giving her any sort of mental and psychological help she needs. Yes. So we're going to get into that. So this was originally, of course, for Matthew supporters, a kick in the face because she could with time started be out in a year or even less. And one male juror later expressed his displeasure with the verdict. Diane Fanning wrote that jury foreman Billy Berry said that he was surprised when the first vote was taken and he learned that many of the women wanted Mary to walk completely free. He went into the jury room believing she was guilty of first degree murder. With those divergent points of view, the deliberations were stressful and often got extremely argumentative. He felt that the panel, to be fair to the victim, should have had more male jurors. I think there was only two. He also said that he was not convinced that Mary's claims of abuse were true. Yeah, but also that statistic is always that women are harder on other women. So that doesn't really bode well for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was one person's opinion. That was his opinion. But yes, you're absolutely correct. But he's one of the jurors. So that's an important opinion. I think he and the other guy, or maybe if there was three, like three guys were all under the impression that she should have gotten first degree murder. And it seemed like the majority of the women on the jury believed the abuse, which does make sense because I think a lot of women probably have secretly suffered from sexual, domestic, verbal abuse and probably not told people. So they might be more inclined to believe another victim. These horrible stories. Yeah. These horrible stories when when other people are saying, but she never told anyone. She never went to the police and she killed him. They might think, well, maybe you've never suffered behind closed doors. Mm hmm. At sentencing, Matthew's loved ones begged the judge to impose the maximum sentence possible for the dual crimes of assassinating both Matthew and his character. Mary's family, supporters, boss, and probation officer pled for leniency. In the end, Mary did get leniency. She was sentenced to three years, the minimum sentence, and an allowance to serve at least 60 days of that sentence in a mental health facility. Due to time served, she basically only had to serve those 60 days. I think she was in prison for one additional week before she was transferred. She was in the mental health facility for 60 days, and then she walked out a free woman. Two questions. I feel like ultimately when you are a juror also you have to consider if this person's like a danger to society and ultimately like I don't think she is. I think if she doesn't get the psychological treatment that she needs, she could be, but I don't think that she is going to go kill like randos. And then second of all, did she go back for any sort of psychological or mental help to anything? I am not aware of whether she continued therapeutic treatment, but I do know that she has never reoffended. So, in any case, They were correct, and the judge was too, that she was not a danger to larger society. In August of 2008, Mary did work out a settlement with Matthew's parents and was awarded custody of her daughters, which 
I do not know how they equitably manage to do so, but I do have to say that's big on Matthew's family for working out a settlement so that she could be the primary parent in her children's life. There must have been a lot yes. of reckoning there. So often we hear about these terrifically terrible custody stories. And it's, I mean, I'm not in the situation, obviously, but it sounds like at least from an outsider's perspective that that was handled better than a lot of these situations we do hear about. And then I also read a 2010 article that said that Mary was in nursing school, but she was having a hard time because she had been recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, at least she got to like go back to school at all. Exactly. So I could not find out any more information, at least readily available since 2010, which means that she has not passed away. I Googled enough about like her children to try to find out what they were up to. It just seemed kind of like everyone would like to be out of the spotlight at this time. So I did not push the envelope as I would not like to reveal anybody's information or situation if they do not willingly participate in a ton of media, obviously. So the big question is, was justice served? So Diane Fanning points out that there was no medical or investigative proof that Matthew had ever truly abused Mary or the kids. There was witnessing of like him calling her fat or that he was like, you know, that her demeanor changed in his presence, that she had physical ailments that were consistent with physical abuse. But there was no police reports. There was no doctor's visits other than that one experience, which people said publicly only two days before she had been hit in the face with a softball. So we have no real physical evidence. But again, domestic violence goes unreported far more than it goes reported, especially in the type of community that she was in. But it's also not justice for Matthew's family to lose their child, his daughters to lose a father. But it also wouldn't be justice if Mary is truly abused for her to go away for the rest of her life to prison because she finally killed her abuser in a disassociative state that she was not aware cognitively of what she was doing. That's also not justice. I know. That's a tricky one. It's in limbo. It's like sure. as close to unsolved as we get in like primary love murder because mm -hmm. it's solved. We know that she did it. We actually know that she's guilty. So it is solved. But it just goes to show you like how equipped are we to actually say what motivations and what reasons justify homicide. <laughs> Homicide is not justifiable. It's not justifiable. Ever. But I just don't understand why she would make all of that up. Yeah, especially if she seemed so hell-bent at the beginning to not give him a bad reputation. Why, if she was really trying to get out of this, wouldn't she right from the get-go say, I was abused, I snapped, it happened, you wouldn't believe what he did to me? He was attacking me. Yeah. It's hard, too, because it's tied up with that religion, too, that's, like, yeah, so hush-hush for the woman. And Rule's take was that she believed it was very possible. 
that Mary suffered the abuse as you described. And she said it was even very possible that Matthew did have a practice. I mean, where would she have made that up from of the pinching and the covering of the mouth? No, that's that's not something you make up. But she believes that it did not happen on the so-called morning of the murder, that it happened like that. Whether or not he was controlling the finances or not, Anne Rule believes that they had a conversation after the girls went to sleep and they fought, just like Mary said. At some point during the fight, the baby woke up and he did do that to the baby. She did stop him and she still got the baby back to sleep, which would make more sense too from having a baby. If your baby wakes up at 6.15, you're usually like, okay, me and the baby are up. Yeah. You're not like, okay, baby, just go back to sleep. At least my kids wouldn't do that. If it was happening more at like 10, 11 at night, you'd be like, okay, baby, go back to sleep. And so she said that given the full bladder evidence, she believes that he had done the same thing that she's describing, but at night. And then they had gone to bed. Maybe Mary couldn't sleep. Maybe she was tortured by it. Maybe she fell asleep and woke up and was still angry about it. Whatever happened, then she killed him while he had the full bladder. And maybe she was sleepwalking. Maybe it was, but maybe when she talked to her defense attorney, he said, it's a way better story if it had just happened because you're responding to anger in the moment and it's more like self-defense then. Yeah, and if she has no idea too. And she has no idea, or at least she said she did. And the psychologist seemed to agree with her that it was entirely possible she was in that disassociative state and perhaps likely. I mean, it's a complicated case. And at the end, like I said, she has not reoffended. She hasn't been in any legal trouble since. So I sincerely hope that she was able to rebuild her relationship with her children. I hope that she's managed to find a career and life and journey that is fulfilling to her. I don't know. I mean, if anyone knows of the the situation personally wants to reach out to me with an update from the family would be very happy to let you guys know. But if there's not, I like to leave well enough alone for the victims of this family who, I mean, other than Matthew are definitely his daughters who have suffered the most in this situation. Yeah. So yeah, Andy, we have a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. There is a Lifetime movie from 2011 that is based on Diane Fanning's book called The Pastor's Wife, starring Rose McGowan as Mary. What network is that on? It's Lifetime, but the full movie is available on YouTube. Okay, we might need to watch that. I think we got to do a watch party on this one. Yeah, I'd love a Rose McGowan moment. I cannot imagine, like, outspoken feminist like naked dress at the MTV VMAs wearing Rose McGowan playing Mary Winkler at all so this is it's got to be a watch party situation also Variety reviewed the movie saying from the pre-opening credit moments when authorities roll out a shrouded body as concerned neighbors look on, it's clear that the pastor's wife is a lifetime movie like Mama used to make them. Oh my God. Fact-based, trashy, and featuring an imperiled young woman. I mean, we gotta do it. We gotta. In conclusion, if somebody asks you to send them money so they can send you more money, don't do it. It's a scam. Also, I think we say this 
We say this every time, but you know, everyone can use a little therapy. It's all good. There's nothing wrong with it. It's good to get an outside opinion. It's good to talk to different people, especially people who are trained therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists. That makes sense. 100% and certainly don't block other people's ability to get therapy that they might massively need. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.